Hey there. Welcome to Tell Me a True Crime Story. I'm your host, Holly. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you and your family are happy, healthy, and together forever. If you don't know the story behind my little slogan, Happy, Healthy, and Together Forever, please go listen to episode 15, Condemned Row Stories, Women Condemned to Die. In the beginning of that episode, I explain why I started using that as my little tagline or catchphrase. I have a big, exciting announcement to make. My podcast is growing a lot. One of the ways is from TikTok. My handle on there is at Tell Me a True Crime Story. So one of my videos blew up on there and has almost 10 million views. So it brought a lot of new listeners to the podcast. So if you're not following me on TikTok, please go do that. I post uh, podcast-related content and other true crime stuff too. I also have an Instagram and Facebook, and I'm at Tell Me a True Crime Story on those as well. And the other reason the podcast has grown so much is because of you all rating and reviewing it. I've been asking you guys to help me out by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple and Spotify, and you guys have been showing up big time. I now have 25 ratings on Apple, and I would like to thank. Jen for the win, Janelle Ski 05, Travel Girl 22, and Eddie Stoned 6 for the review and five stars. Your guys' kind words touched my heart so much. Um, It really means a ton to me. I thank you guys so much. And um, I also received nice words from, it's either Seuss Livin' or Sus Livin'. Uh, He or she said, I stumbled upon this podcast and boy, am I glad I did with exclamation points, but she, he or she only gave me one star. So I think the one star was a mistake. So if you're listening, Seuss living or Sus living, please edit your rating on Apple and change the stars from one to five. But yeah, I thank you guys so much and big, big hugs to you guys for taking the time out of your day to review my podcast. And for those of you that gave me five stars without writing a review, I thank you guys so much too. I'm sorry that I can't thank you by name because it won't let me see the names of the users that give the stars only without like a written review. But thank you so much, whoever you are, and big hugs to you guys too. And I told you all last week that I was still holding steady at seven five-star ratings on Spotify. Well, I now have 13 five-star ratings on Spotify. That's six more in just one week. So wow. Thank you all so much for rating the the podcast Spotify users and Apple users. I am giving you all big hugs right now. So for those of you who who haven't done so yet, you guys can help me out a ton by leaving me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or a five-star rating on Spotify. So to leave me a rating and review on Apple, you just go to my show page and you scroll down till you see ratings and reviews. Then you select a star rating and below that you click on write a review. So thank you so much again. I can't say that enough. Um, Are any of you guys going to CrimeCon this weekend in in Orlando? 
I have a really quick funny story for you. So a while back, I had applied to be on podcast row. Well, I didn't think that there was a chance in hell that, you know, I'd I'd get accepted because I'm new and, you know, I just didn't think I would. So, and I was right. I didn't get accepted. However, I was still determined to go. So I asked my two daughters, they're in their 20s, if they'd like to go with me. And they were like, oh, yeah. So um, about a month ago, I went online to buy the tickets. Well, I don't know why, but I didn't think the tickets would be like that much. I thought they'd be like 100 or maybe a 150 per person. Um, but <laughs> so I went on there to get the tickets and they were like 300 something per person to like well over 1000 something per person for like some VIP thing or whatever. So I don't know why I assumed they were cheaper, but I don't, that's just me being dumb. I've never really been to like a convention, so I didn't really know. I guess I just assumed. Um, So, well, I couldn't afford to buy those tickets for like all three of us. So we signed up to go as volunteers, me and my daughters. So I'll be volunteering at CrimeCon on Friday evening, this Friday, which will be, let's see, today's the 20th. So it'll be the 22nd in the evening. And um, so if any of you guys like have seen me before on TikTok and you know what I look like and you're going to CrimeCon and you see me there like volunteering, come say hi to me and say, you know, I've heard your podcast and introduce yourself so I can meet some of you guys in person. And um, so now, you know, if you want to go to CrimeCon next time and you don't really have the money or don't want to spend that money on a ticket, you can sign up to go as a volunteer and you can go for free because they let you hang out on the day that you volunteer. Like, so I'm um, volunteering in the evening, so I'll be able to hang out like during the day, like late morning and early afternoon before my shift. So that's how they do it. So yeah, Um, if you guys go, come say hi. If you've seen me on social media and you know like what I look like, then pop up and please say hi. Since it's getting closer to Halloween, I wanted to start telling you guys about cases that happened um, on Halloween. I actually did this episode like last year when I first started doing my podcast, but I've updated it a little and re-recorded it. I'm in the midst of working on a new case, but I couldn't get it ready in time because we had company at our house this week and I didn't want to leave you guys hanging because, um, you know, you guys have been so faithful to me and I have so many new listeners that I really need to stay consistent and I don't want to let anybody down. So um, let's get into this episode. This is episode 27. It's called Halloween Horrors, Lynette Ledford. This story actually starts well before Halloween in the year 1979, but events leading up to the murder of Shirley Lynette Ledford, who went by Lynette, actually started in early 1979. Her murderers were convicted of raping and killing five young women, but Shirley Lynette was their last victim and she was killed on Halloween. I will probably cover um, this case of these two murderers in more depth, like sometime in the future. This was a really, really tough one to research and write. I mean, when I did the initial research and writing, it was last year, but it's it's definitely stuck with me because it's awful. The horrendous, shocking, appalling details surrounding this murder and the other murders committed by these two men made me feel so anxious, sick, disgusted, pissed, and heartbroken. Definitely do not listen to this episode in the presence of children. 
Now, let me tell you a true crime story. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born on September 27, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His mom was just a teenager when he was born and his father was abusive. His mom placed him in an orphanage and he was adopted by distant relatives. He was very smart and had a well above average IQ of 138, but he was unmotivated. As a child, he had no friends and was socially awkward. Bittaker hated his birth mother and would fantasize about finding her and killing her. He liked playing with fire and burnt two sheds. His adoptive uh, parents had pet rabbits, and one time he ripped out one of the rabbit's teeth with a pair of pliers. As a teenager, he'd set his alarm clock for midnight when he'd get up and prowl around his neighborhood. He eventually started to break into homes and move the furniture around. He did this because he enjoyed making people feel unsafe in their own homes. It was part of his sadistic nature. He got arrested at the age of 17 and was sent to the California Youth Authority until the age of 19. He went on to commit many more crimes such as car theft, burglary, and robbery and was sent to prison. Each time he was released, he would get rearrested for a parole violation. In 1974, while out on parole, Bittaker was stealing a pack of meat from Ralph's Supermarket in Hollywood, California. When a supermarket clerk stopped Bittaker in the parking lot and asked him if he'd forgotten to pay for something, Bittaker stabbed him in the chest without warning. Without any warning, um, he didn't say anything to him before stabbing him. Fortunately, the victim survived the stabbing. Bittaker was sent to the East Facility of the California Men's Colony, known as CMC East. Roy Lewis Norris was born on February 2, 1948, in Greeley, Colorado. He dropped out of school and joined the Navy at the age of 17. He was stationed in San Diego, but did go to Vietnam for a short time for about four months. Reportedly, he saw no combat while in Vietnam. He was eventually discharged from the Navy for psychological problems. Norris attacked women in attempted rapes, one in 1969 and another in 1970. He brutally attacked another woman who was a student on the San Diego State University campus. He hit her on the head with a rock, then slammed her head into the concrete. She survived, and Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He spent five years in a Tascadero State Hospital in San Luis Obispo County, California. A Tascadero State Hospital is a psychiatric hospital with a secure perimeter. Only three months after his release from a Tascadero, he raped a woman. He was convicted of rape and was sent to CMC East, the same prison as Lawrence Bittaker. CMC East is located along the central California coast, about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. At CMC East, a deadly duo was formed when Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris became associated. They hung out. They made jewelry together. They began to share violent sexual fantasies with one another. They also shared these fantasies with another inmate named Richard Shoopman. Shoopman would write up their fantasies and they'd sell them to other inmates. Bittaker and Norris wanted to kill one teen girl for every year of the teen years, 13 through 19. For instance, they wanted to kill one 13-year-old, one 14-year-old, one 15-year-old, and so on. When they were released from prison, they planned to reunite with one another and make their sick fantasies a reality. 
Bitteker was released from prison in late 1978 and Norris was released in early 1979. They reunited with one another soon after Norris' release and began to put the plans they'd made in prison into action. Norris contributed financially and Bitteker purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van with a large passenger side sliding door. He and Norris nicknamed the van Murder Mac. They outfitted the inside of the van with everything they'd need to carry out their sadistic, murderous ideas. They installed green shag carpet and a makeshift bed. They kept a toolbox and a cooler under the bed. They even soundproofed the van. They kept walkie-talkies, police scanners, a Polaroid camera, and a cassette tape recorder in the van. From February to June 1979, Bitteker and Norris made many dry runs prior to their first murder. They used different ruses to get girls who were hitchhiking to accept rides from them. On Sunday, June 24, 1979, they were smoking pot and taking pictures of teens and young women in Redondo Beach, California. They'd been driving around doing this for about 15 hours when they spotted a 16-year-old blonde, Lucinda Schaefer, walking along the highway. She went by the name Cindy. She'd just left a church meeting and was headed back to her grandparents' home where she was staying. When she turned to walk down a residential street, Bitteker and Norris followed her. They pulled up beside her in the van and asked her if she wanted a ride and to smoke some grass with them. She said no and kept walking. Bitteker drove down the street, made a U-turn, came back, and parked on the same side of the street she was walking down. Norris got out and pretended to be working on the van. Norris grabbed Cindy off of the sidewalk as she walked by and threw her into the van. According to Bitteker's own words in Oxygen's 2021 documentary, The Toolbox Killer, Cindy made it quote-unquote easy for them because she wasn't very aware of her surroundings. Cindy had just gotten abducted by two of the most sadistic killers ever in American history, killers who would later become known as the Toolbox Killers. They were given this moniker because they used everyday common tools from the toolbox they kept hidden under the makeshift bed in the van to torture their victims. Bitteker and Norris drove an hour, taking Cindy into the San Gabriel Mountains, where they took turns raping her. They strangled her with a coat hanger, wrapped her body in a shower curtain, and threw her body down a steep ravine. Two weeks later, on July 8, 1979, searching for another victim, they happened upon 18-year-old Andrea Hall, who was hitchhiking in Manhattan Beach, California. She was trying to go visit her boyfriend in Wilmington, California, about 15 miles away. But before Bitteker and Norris could offer her a ride, another car pulled up and offered her a ride. She accepted the ride from the other driver. However, Bitteker and Norris followed that car, thinking that they might not take her as far as she'd wanted to go. They were right. She got out of the car in Redondo Beach and started hitchhiking again. Norris hid under the bed and Bitteker pulled up and offered her a ride. She got in. Then Norris jumped out of hiding to subdue her. She fought him hard, but he eventually got her bound and gagged. She was taken into the same mountains as as their first victim, Cindy Schaefer, and she met a very similar fate. Her body was then dumped over a steep cliff. 
On Sunday, September 2, 1979, Bideker and Norris picked up two hitchhiking teens in Redondo Beach, Jacqueline Gilliam, who went by Jackie, who was 15, and Leah Lamp, who was only 13. When they entered the van, Norris hit Leah Lamp over the head with a homemade sap filled with BBs. A sap is a long bag or even a tube sock filled with something that gives it great weight. After knocking 13-year-old Leah Lamp unconscious with the sap, Norris tied up Jackie Gilliam. At some point, Leah Lamp regained consciousness and tried to escape, but she was caught and dragged back into the van. They were taken into the San Gabriel Mountains. After Bideker learned that Jackie Gilliam was a virgin, he decided to record her screams on his tape recorder. Neither Bideker nor Norris was sexually interested in Leah Lamp. Bideker and Norris kept Leah Lamp and Jackie Gilliam for about 48 hours before killing them. They ended up killing the girls in very horrific ways and then threw their bodies over an embankment. On September 27, 1979, Bideker and Norris attempted to kidnap a woman, but she went behind the van and escaped. Three days later, on September 30, 1979, they attempted to kidnap a 20-year-old named Jan. Norris was driving and Bideker got out and sprayed Jan with mace and tried to drag her into the van. Jan began screaming loudly, and thankfully people came out of nearby homes to see what was going on. Norris drove away in the van, and Bideker fled the scene on foot. Shirley Lynette Ledford, who went by Lynette, was born on March 4, 1963, in Los Angeles County, California. She lived in Burbank, California. On Halloween, October 31, 1979, 16-year-old Lynette was hitchhiking after leaving a Halloween party where she'd had a great time. Bideker and Norris pulled up in the van and she got right in. She could not have known that four other girls had come before her, that their tortured screams had filled this van. This time, Bideker and Norris did not drive to the San Gabriel Mountains. Bideker drove to an isolated gravel dirt path in Burbank, California. Bideker got in the back with Lynette, and Norris got into the driver's seat. Bideker produced a knife, and Lynette grabbed the blade, which cut her finger deeply. The cassette tape recorder was turned on so that these sadistic, twisted murderers could relive Lynette's screams of agony over and over again whenever they wished. The pain and suffering inflicted upon and experienced by a non-consenting person is what stimulates and arouses a sexual sadist. They love to see the fear in someone's eyes. In order to elicit the reactions from Lynette that these merciless, pitiless, savage, inhuman killers craved, they used pliers and a sledgehammer to torture her. An audio tape transcript of Lynette's final moments on earth tells the most gruesome and nightmarish tale of the pure living hell that she was put through. On Oxygen's documentary, The Toolbox Killer, Mary Ellen O'Toole, retired FBI agent of the Behavioral Analysis Unit, said of the tape recording, quote, the tape was one of the worst things I've ever heard in my entire professional career. It should never see the light of day. It is very, very, very upsetting. And frankly, it involves the torture of an innocent young woman. And so at her expense, it should never, ever be played for an audience. End quote. Lynette begged for her life on the tape. She screamed and screamed and screamed. Toward the end, right before Norris strangled her to death, the tape was turned off. 
Reportedly, the last words she spoke before her young life was snuffed out were, Do it. Just kill me. 16-year-old Lynette could take no more of the excruciating pain. She could bear no more of the agony. She wanted the misery and suffering to end. She begged to be killed by her captors. Norris took a wire coat hanger and twisted it with pliers to strangle her to death. The toolbox killers dumped her body on an ivy bed in a residential neighborhood. There's conflicting reports as to whether her body was discovered by a jogger that morning or whether she was found by the woman whose property she was left on. The Oxygen documentary said that she was found by the woman who owned the property. When the woman saw Lynette's body, she initially thought it was a mannequin because Halloween had been the night before. At Lynette's autopsy, when the wire coat hanger was removed from her neck, it was about as big around as a silver dollar. That's how much it had been tightened down on her neck with the pliers. Roy Norris ended up telling or bragging to an acquaintance, Joe Jackson, who was also a rapist, about raping and killing the young teens that summer. Joe Jackson was not okay with what Norris had told him, and he went to his attorney with the information. Joe Jackson and his attorney went to the police. This led to police surveilling Norris, who was on parole. When he stopped at a drugstore and went in, police approached his vehicle and looked in the window. In a wide-open grocery bag, they were able to see a bag of marijuana. They arrested him for violation of his parole. In a subsequent search of his duplex located at 313 Garnett Street in Redondo Beach, the police located about 500 pictures of young women and teens. These pictures were taken of women and girls walking, roller skating, and at gyms, in parking lots, and at the beach. They located pictures of victim Jackie Gilliam naked from the waist up. While the police were searching Norris's place, Bittaker called him on the phone. The police answered and said Norris was unable to get to the phone because he was fixing the antenna on the roof. Bittaker didn't buy this and became suspicious. He quickly cleaned everything out of their silver murder van, put it in a bag, and buried it. Police searching Norris's home soon found a small card with Scott Motel on it with Bittaker's name. Scott Motel is where Bittaker was living. The Burbank Police Department headed to his room at the motel and busted in the door and window. He was in the shower when he was arrested. Norris ended up confessing to police and agreed to testify against Bittaker in exchange for a sentence of 45 years to life with a possibility of parole after 30 years. He also agreed to lead investigators to the location of the bodies of Cindy Schaefer, Andrea Hall, Leah Lamp, and Jackie Gilliam. They were able to locate some partial skeletal remains of Leah Lamp and Jackie Gilliam. The skull of Jackie Gilliam still had an ice pick protruding from it. The bodies of Cindy Schaefer and Andrea Hall were not found. Bittaker went to trial in early 1981. For the first time in California history, cameras were allowed in the courtroom. Bittaker took the stand in his own defense. He claimed that Norris was the real perpetrator. He also claimed that the teen girls were paid to pose for pictures, to perform sexual acts, or to deliver quote-unquote pillow talk. He said that some of the girls were drug-crazed. But one major piece of damning evidence presented by the prosecution against Bittaker told the real, undeniable truth. 
This piece of evidence was discovered during the search of the murder van. Bideker had overlooked one thing when he'd collected and buried everything from the van. He'd left the audio tape of Lynette Ledford's torture and rape in the cassette player. This tape was played in open court at his trial, and per the prosecuting attorney, the members of the jury looked to be in shock at what they'd heard. People sitting in the audience got up and walked out of the courtroom, some of them weeping loudly. The courtroom artist also ran out in tears. The jury of seven women and five men found Bideker guilty on all 26 counts against him. The prosecutor sought the death penalty against Bideker. In court, the prosecutor asked, quote, If the death penalty isn't proper in this case, when would it ever be proper? End quote. The jury unanimously agreed that Bideker be put to death by lethal gas. They made their decision within 60 seconds of deliberating. Because of all of Bideker's appeals and legal shenanigans throughout the years, he was never executed by the state of California. He resided in San Quentin as California Department of Corrections inmate number C-28400 until the end of his days. He died in prison of cancer on Friday, December 13, 2019. He was 79 years old. Norris served time at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County, California, as California Department of Corrections inmate number C-30231. He died less than two months after Bideker of natural causes on Monday, February 24, 2020, at the age of 72. Lynette Ledford is buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills, California. On her grave marker, it reads, quote, beloved daughter and sister, end quote. I'm sure this case has sickened and angered you as it did me, and I didn't even detail all of the vile, evil, unbelievably cruel things that these sadistic murderers did to their innocent young victims. Thank you guys so much for being here and for listening to another episode of Tell Me a True Crime Story. Please tell your friends, coworkers, and family about the podcast and share a link to the podcast with someone who's interested in true crime. Um, let them know that they can listen to the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever. So please stop what you're doing and go follow the podcast too on social media. Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are at Tell Me a True Crime Story. So I have two ways you can support my podcast. You can buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com slash true crime story pod. And the other way is totally free. You can write a short but sweet review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or give it a five-star rating on Spotify. Thank you again for being here. You know that I truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you. And please join me in episode 28 when I'll tell you another true crime story. Big, big hugs to all of you. Bye-bye.